we are going to um, pause in our series in Mark right now. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is right after the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the welcome table back there. Um, if you are using one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 909 this morning. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And we're going to um, we're going to get Luke's perspective on an aspect of the Christmas story. Uh, the first part of Luke chapter 2 right there is the, is the story that tells of Jesus' birth. We're going to focus on, um, on this, this interaction between the shepherds and the angels this morning. Now Mark, if you remember, Mark, Mark doesn't cover Jesus' childhood. He doesn't cover his birth. Mark's gospel starts, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then boom, boom. He's going into the, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus as a grown-up man, Okay. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, is known for its detailed and orderly account of Jesus' life from his birth through his death into his resurrection. And then if uh, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, and so they're like two volumes put together. So he, he even continues in the details of what the church does after Jesus ascends to heaven. And so um, in the first two chapters, Luke gives these, the, this detailed account of Jesus' early life, his, his, his birth all the way up through his adolescence. And, um, and this morning, we're going to pick up right after Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And, uh, and we're going to focus on what happens then in the nearby fields with the, with the shepherds and the angels. I think that this passage reveals a very important theme in the Christmas story that many of us intentionally, not intentionally, unintentionally overlook. And we're going to be covering quite a bit of scripture today to kind of lay out this theme. And so, um, uh, but we're going to anchor everything back into Luke 2. And so you can stay open to Luke 2 in your Bibles, and, and we'll just show Luke 2 up here. And you can just listen to these other passages. You can jot them down if you want, or if you don't want to, you can contact me this week, and I'll give them to you. It's fine. Um, but we need, to, we need to see how scripture interprets scripture, because scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. So we need to see how this unfolds, uh, this theme around Christmas that we're going to find out. And so I want to read our passage this morning, and then I want to pray, and then we'll jump into the message. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. 
We pray that you would illuminate, illuminate it in our hearts and in our minds, that you would help us to see Christ clearly this morning in Scripture, and that you would help us to glorify you as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Let's keep Christ in Christmas. Merry Christmas, all caps, right? Um, I think we've all heard these phrases before. We may have even said them a time or two. Some of you may have actually put it on your Christmas card. And, and, and so as we move in this morning, I, I want to just make something really clear. I'm not here to belittle you if you did that, okay? I do want to prod us a little bit, though, to think about the true meaning. Why do we say those things? Why, why is it that we feel the need to, 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 to say these things and, to, and to, to declare these things? You see, those, those Christmas sayings are, are a response to the secularization of the Christmas season, right? We don't have to really, as believers, I mean, we do need to remind each other all the time. But, but we know that Christ is the reason for Christmas, right? And so when we say those things, it's, it's typically not inward to one another, it's outward toward the culture. And so um, their intended use seems good, but I, I still think that we can miss the mark with these slogans, and here's why. Because we can actually spend more time and energy responding to the culture around us than worshiping the God who came to us. And so when we do that, then we end up defending a holiday from a Christless culture rather than magnifying the Christ about whom the holiday uh, is about. So whether, whether we use those Christmas slogans or not, here's the, here's the deal. We are all prone to forget that the most important thing about Christmas is not the preservation of Christmas, it's the glory of God. And as a result, we often fall short of glorifying God in the midst of our hol- holiday celebration, and we end up looking more like the culture than we care to admit. And so as Christians, here's what we need to do. We need to celebrate Christmas as a display of God's glory in the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And if we're going to celebrate Christmas this way, we need to understand a few things. We need to understand first that God has always been about his own glory. And that the gospel is God-centered and not man-centered. And our response then to the Christmas story is the same as our response to the gospel. It's to glorify God. And so first we need to see that God has always been about his own glory. Look at verses 8 and 9. In the same regions, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, there's a sharp uh, contrast here between the shepherds and the angel of the Lord. Even though the shepherds were honored uh, uh, it was an honored occupation in the Old Testament. By the time that Jesus came, shepherds were really despised by the Jewish community. They were the ones that were out there in charge of keeping the flocks that were used for temple sacrifices. And so oftentimes that made the shepherds unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so they were, they were despised. It was a despised pr- pr- uh, profession. And so they're, they're, they're outside in the fields with their flocks under this dark night sky when an angel of the Lord appeared in their midst. And now, usually when we think about angels, right, we think like white robes, gold wings, halo, floating up in the air somewhere, right? That's not actually how the Bible describes angels. 
The Bible, in, in, uh, consistently throughout, most often the description of an angel, they look like an ordinary man. And so we got to picture this angel not up here out in the sky, but actually down here standing among the shepherds. And then it says, when he appeared, though, this is what differentiates him. He's not just a, a regular man. It says, the glory of the Lord surrounded the shepherds and fully engulfed them in blazing light. Their night sky was no longer a night sky. And they were terrified, which is the right response for anyone who beholds the glory of God. The, the literal language there, it says they feared a great fear. Now, okay, kids, where are all the kids? Raise your hand. Okay, I want to know, what does it look like when you're scared? Show me your best scared face. Oh, I saw, yeah, okay, adults, let's see, what, what do you have? All of you are smiling and laughing. Do you laugh when you get afraid? Okay. Now, it's not a coincidence, right, that the, that the angel appeared in the glory of God before he gave this message to the shepherds because the, God's glory and his message are always together. They're never separate. They can't be separated, and that's because from the beginning to the end, the message of Scripture is about God and his glory. Listen to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. I don't know if you've been to the sea before, but there's water everywhere, right? It's all over the place. And so Habakkuk right here says that just as the sea is full of water, so will the earth be full of God's glory. So we just, let's just think about that for a second. Get that in our minds, this picture. I would be terrified to be stuck out in the sea. You would see my scared face. You wouldn't because I'd be out there by myself, but... Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place. I will do all I will. Psalm 86, 8 through 10, Lord, there is none like you. So now it's not just God declaring who he is, it's people declaring who he is. There is none like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor or glorify your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Revelation 4.11, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will, they exist and were created. We could go on and on and on like this. The theme of God's glory appears about 275 times in various English translations of the Bible. Over 50 times in the, gospel, in the, um, the Psalms alone. And it appears here in the fields with the shepherds and the angel of the Lord in Luke 2 and God's glory blazing all around them as they stood in that field. As the shepherds quake in terror, this angel, this messenger, that's what an angel is, it's a messenger. And they brought them, he brought them this glorious message of hope. Look at verse 10. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has, was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby 
wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. So even though the shepherds rightly responded to the appearance of God's glory in fear, the angel told them not to be afraid. Why? Why would he say that? Because the news that he had to bring them is good news. It's gospel news, right? Good news means gospel. Gospel means good news. It's the same word there. I have good news of great joy. I have gospel news for you. Great joy to the nation of Israel and eventually the world. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't future news. It was right now news. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. A baby who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. He's the rescuer. He's the anointed one. He's the king over all things. It's also reliable news. The shepherds could go to Bethlehem and see what the angel had told them had happened. They would find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Right before this part, again, in Luke chapter 2, is the story of Jesus' birth. And so as readers, we can read that. We can see what's coming. And as soon as the angel of the Lord proclaimed the good news, this, this gospel news to the shepherds, something happened then to show that this baby that he's talking about is more than just a baby. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the sheer number of angels that show up in that moment and lifted their voices to God in praise. Listen, this was no silent night in the fields. In that moment, all of heaven was raising its voice. And we're not just talking about three or four angels here. We're not talking about like a football stadium of angels. Has anybody ever been to a football game, NFL, college? You know how loud that can get, right? It doesn't even compare. No comparison. The term heavenly host is a military term. It's an army of angels declaring this battle cry of victory and praise uh, over this, this baby, this triumphant praise to God, declaring peace to those whom God favors. Now, an army declaring peace. Just think about that for a minute. That's amazing. I'm pretty sure if we could wrap our minds around even just this moment, this magnitude of this sound, our understanding, our depth of, of, of awe of who God is would just plunge down. Now, I'm not sure we can fully grasp that kind of noise, but I want to try, okay? Now, kids, I need your help again. Are you guys ready for this? Listen, this is a chance for you to yell in the service and not get in trouble by mom and dad, okay? Except for you. I'm just kidding. It's my son. Let's go. Let's go. Um, are you gonna, will you put those words up on the screen? Yes, thank you. Okay. Now, kids, I'm going to count to three. Adults, you can join in too. I hope you will. Um, and, and when I count to three, I want you to yell as loud as you can, glory to God in the highest heaven, okay? Glory to God in the highest heaven. Are you ready? Let's try it. One, two, three. Oh, that was pretty good. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. Oh, I think the kids won. Yeah. Their scary faces are better. Just before the angel of the Lord came to share the good news with these shepherds, the glory of the Lord 
shown around these men. And right after he shared the good news, suddenly now an army of angels appeared, praising God and doing what? Giving him glory. The good news is surrounded by God's glory on both sides. And that's because the gospel is God-centered, not man-centered. Think about the nativity scene for a moment. Everybody, you know, you have your nativity scene. We have uh, one of those Fontanini sets that you can't destroy. My grandma gave us that one. Kids love to play with that, right? But no matter how you set it up, what's the central figure? It's Jesus, right? It's the baby. What did the angel tell the shepherds to do after he told them the good news? Go and see the baby in the manger. Jesus, I've heard it. Christ's birth is this pivotal moment in history. It's the moment that God himself put on human flesh so that he could later die for our sins. But there's a danger here that we have to be really careful to avoid when we think about the Christmas story. And that danger is when we start to put ourselves in the center of it. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. For unto us a child is born. These are true things. It's true that Christ came for us, but we are not the focal point. Christ came for us, and here's the kicker, so that God would be glorified. You know what the Bible has to say about us? About mankind? Here's a few passages. Isaiah 2, 22. Put no more trust in a mere human who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? Merry Christmas. Psalm 146, 3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. Jeremiah 17, 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. Even the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who he rescued from Egypt, they're not at the center of the story. Listen to what he says to them in Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. You have never heard... You have never known. For a long time your ears have not been opened. For I knew that you were very treacherous and were known as a rebel from birth. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act, Israel, for my own sake. Indeed, my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. Because God has always been about his own glory, his saving acts must also be about his own glory. God's highest commitment is to himself and not to us. That's really hard to hear, but hang with me. It's important that we understand that because there are many people who are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is is man-centered. But we're not always aware of this mindset. We can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we're centering our lives on God, but deep down we're convincing ourselves that God's main focus is on us, and in reality we've made him only a means of self-esteem instead of esteeming him for rescuing us from ourselves. I think this is one of the main reasons that we end up proclaiming Jesus as our Savior, but we continue to live in disobedience to his lordship in our lives. It's why we attempt to make him a part of our lives instead of realizing he is our life. There is no other way to look at it. A true relationship with Christ requires that we be willing to be God-centered because God is God-centered. 
And if we can begin to understand that God's highest commitment is to himself and not to us, then it will change the way that we view the gospel and we'll see it for what it truly is, one big declaration of the glory of God. God made it very clear in Isaiah 48 that Israel's salvation is not for their sake. It's for their good, but it's not for their sake. It's for his own sake. It's for his own glory. The fact that anyone is saved, Jew, Gentile, anyone in the world, the fact that they are saved, it's not for their sake. It's for their good, but it's for God's own sake and God's own glory. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from the ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Why did Christ come? Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised, the Jews, on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Why did Jesus willingly give up his life to save sinners? He gives the answer in John 12, 27 and 28. It says, now my, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's facing death on the cross right here. What do I say? God, save me? No. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Christ lived this perfect life, and he died a perfect death to glorify God the Father and repair all the defamation that we brought to him, to his name, because of our sin. God is about God. God's gospel is about God. The foundation of the gospel is not our salvation, it's God's glory. But this doesn't make the message of the gospel any less good news for us. In fact, it makes it better news for us. But to understand why it's better news, we need to bring clarity to something. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. God is love. We've heard all over the place this morning that he was there before we were. The Bible tells us that he is love. He gets to define what love is and what it looks like. In John 15, 13, we're told that there's no greater display of love than when a man lays down his life for another. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, foreshadowing what he's about to do. So this means that love in its highest form is self-sacrificial. And yet it seems pretty self-centered for God's greatest agenda to be to glorify himself above all things, right? I mean, we've got we to gotta kind of wrestle with that this morning. These things don't make sense in our minds. How can, we, how, how can he be completely self-sacrificial and completely self-centered at the same time? There's only one answer. It's because he's God. And there is no other. There, there is no other category. There is no category for him except him. He's in a category all his own. You and I are human beings. An oak is a tree. An alligator is a reptile. Bacon is delicious food. We should probably be amen on some of those other things too. Gabriel is an angel. Satan is a liar. God is God. God is God. He's the creator and the sustainer of everything. To him there is no equal. We have no mental category for him because we cannot compare anything to him. 
So we have to let him tell us who he is. That's why we open this up every single week. Only God is God. When, when, when we exalt ourselves, it's the sin of pride. When God exalts himself, it's not sin. If it were, listen, he wouldn't be God. He would be like us, right? Instead, God's exaltation of himself is simply a display of his glory. God is the one being in all creation for whom the most uh, loving act is self-exaltation because only he alone can satisfy us. And we won't be fully satisfied until we know that there is nothing or no one else that is greater than he is that can satisfy us. And the greatest display of his self-exalting glory comes through the greatest display of his self-sacrificial love, the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. For our salvation. You see, Jesus is the glory of God in all his fullness. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Christ, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Every believer in this room needs to understand this point right here, that Jesus Christ loves you, that he died for you, but he did so in order that you might live for him and that you might glorify him. God pursues his glory through his salvation, through our salvation. And, and this is the most loving thing that he could do. A pastor named John Piper puts it this way. He says, why does God remind us over and over that he makes much of us in a way that is designed ultimately to make much of him? The answer is this, loving us in this way is the greater love. God's love for us that makes much of us for his glory is a greater love than if he ended by making us our greatest treasure rather than himself. Making himself our end is a greater love than making us his end. The reason this is greater love is that self, no matter how glorified by God, Romans 8.30, will never satisfy a heart that is made for God. God loves us infinitely. He sent his son to die that he might have us and we might have him, 1 Peter 3.18. He will not let us settle for wonderful and happy thoughts of self, not even a glorified self. He will not let our glory, which he himself creates and delights in, replace his glory as our supreme treasure. You are a precious gift to God and the greatest gift he has for you is not to let your preciousness become your God. God will be your God. God alone forever, and this is infinite love. This is how much he makes of you. I love the way the New Living Translation puts Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, it says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. 
And so we praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And here it is. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. There's no doubt that God takes much pleasure in us. You can't read scripture and come away not understanding that, not seeing that. But his higher purpose in doing so is that we would make much of him. In Luke chapter 2, the angels revealed the purpose of the gospel message. We get the Savior, God gets the glory. We get great joy and peace, God gets the praise. And in Ephesians 1.13, we see that along with joy and peace, every believer then is also given the Holy Spirit. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to help me sin less and less and to live rightly before God, to obey God more and more. And the Holy Spirit does that by burning deeply in me what has been burning deeply in him throughout all eternity. Here it is, God's love for God. As Christians, our obedience glorifies God and we obey because we burn with Holy Spirit love for him and we love him because he loved us and because he sent his son for us. And so what is our response then to this, this Christmas story? It's the same as our response to the gospel. It's to glorify God. So we need to come back to Luke chapter two and see how this plays out in, in verse 15. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord had made known to us. They hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things They had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. The first thing the shepherds did was believe. They believed the message of the good news after they were terrified and were told not to be afraid, right? They said, the Lord has made this known to us. They were convinced this is a message from God. They weren't skeptical. They went to see, not because they doubted, but because they believed what God had said was true. And then they saw with their own eyes the glory of God when they beheld the son lying in the manger. And after experiencing this good news then for themselves, what did they do? They shared the good news with others. 
And after they shared that good news with others, they returned home, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. As believers, here, here's, our, here's our takeaway this morning. This should be our response too. As people who have believed the message of the gospel, we need to behold the glory of God in the gospel at Christmas and then glorify the God of the gospel at Christmas. We need to linger at the manger and peer in on the child who was born to die for us so that we might live. We need to treasure up all these things and meditate them on, on them as Mary did. We need to be humbled by the thought that the king of glory came to lay his back on the wood of a manger as a baby and he took his final breath with his back pressed against the wood of the cross. We need to marvel at the fact that this baby was wrapped in swaddling cloths and then later he would be wrapped in grave clothes and put in a tomb with the stone rolled over it and darkness inside. And we need to rejoice with the shepherds and the angels and praise our risen king because the stone didn't stay there. The grave clothes came off and our savior walked out of the grave because he is the king of glory. And he's clothed in glory now, seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And we need to glorify God for all the things that we have seen and heard as a result of who Jesus is and what he has done because they are just as we have been told. What if instead of, of, of fighting a Christless culture to keep Christ in Christmas, we actually went into this culture and we brought Christ to them? What if instead of reclaiming the holiday from the world who hates God, we showed them how Christ has reclaimed us even though we once hated God? Isn't that the true meaning of Christmas? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? That, that, that Christ has come to reconcile God and man. Shouldn't we want others to know that they can be reconciled to God more than we want, to recon, want them to reconcile the way that they celebrate a holiday? We glorify God at Christmas by living and speaking this good news of great joy that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of focusing our energy on, on hoarding this holiday for ourselves, let's focus our energy on giving Christ away as a gift to the world in desperate need of him. And you might be sitting in here this morning and, and you, you haven't believed this good news. Maybe you've come several times and you've heard it. Maybe this is the first time and you've come and, and you've heard it, but you haven't believed yet. Listen, this gift is available to you. This is for you. This is the reason that you are here. You can't keep Christ in Christmas if you don't see Christ in Christmas. I want you to see Christ. I want you to behold the baby in the manger. I want you to see more than a baby. I want you to see that he came to live and to die and to rise from the grave so that you could be forgiven. There's no greater gift, no greater, no greater love that anyone could give to you than Jesus Christ. So believe this good news this morning. It's true. It's good news of great joy. You can have peace with God. 
You can't reconcile you to him, but Jesus can. So believe it. Turn from your sins and trust in this Christ, the Savior. I don't want you to keep Christ in Christmas. I want you to be kept in Christ this Christmas. A day is coming when we will, who are in Christ will join with a multitude of angels and the rest of creation and glorify our risen Savior. You think it was loud in the fields that day. It's nothing in comparison to what's coming. The Apostle John gives us a glimpse of this, what this will look like in Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 14. He says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. I have no category for that. It's a lot. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay, kids, this is your last chance to yell and not get in trouble, okay? Adults, you might get in trouble if you don't yell. The louder, the better. Here's what we're going to say this time. We get to practice what we're going to say. Blessing and honor and glory and power forever, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. Blessing and honor and glory and power forever. One, two, three. Blessing and honor and glory and power forever. Any reservation you have to say that now will be wiped away then. There will be no fear as a follower of Christ who believes this good news. You will shout this as loud as your lungs have the capacity to give you a voice, which they'll be perfected, so you'll be shouting pretty loud. This is a real thing that we are going to really say to a real Savior who came as a baby, died as a man, rose as a king. Amen? What a day that will be. So let's be a people who are first and foremost about God's glory because God is first and foremost about God's glory. Let's be God-centered because God is God-centered. Let's be less concerned with convincing a Christless culture to keep Christ in Christmas and more concerned with keeping ourselves in Christ and giving him away to others this year. Let's celebrate Christmas as a display of God's glory through the gospel and give unbelievers a real reason to put Christ in their Christmas. All for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are king. We thank you that you have come, that you put on flesh, that you became like sinful, mortal man. And you did what we couldn't do. You obeyed the Father in perfect obedience, in perfect love unselfishly, wholly and completely and you loved us 
and you gave yourself for us to die for our sins, for our rebellion against God, for our disobedience and hatred toward him. And you rose from the grave to reconcile God and his people. Let there be no one in here this morning that walks out of here unreconciled to you. Let your word work with your spirit to illuminate our hearts to this truth and see that it is good news and that we might glorify you because of it. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who is alone, God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen.